Well, God promises us all sorts of good things. Uh, A lot of good promises. He promises us eternal life. He promises us his peace. He promises us uh, ultimate security, never-ending faithfulness, his love, all these sorts of things. The list could go on and on of his promises. Well, there's one promise from God that is not so pleasant. He promises that if you are a Christian, you will experience persecution. And uh, you'll be attacked because you are a Christian. It's the sort of, sort of promise that we'd really rather not have. Um, but on multiple occasions, Jesus says this is a very likely thing. In many ways, it's almost guaranteed. Persecution is an attack on our faith. It's something that threatens to dislodge our faith in God. It threatens to dislodge um, our path in following him. There are lots of ways, even beyond persecution, that we experience attacks on our faith. They can come in different forms. You may have a friend or a coworker who is hostile to the Christian faith. They may be intellectually belittling. They may say, faith, ah, faith, faith is a crutch for people who don't know how to handle their lives. They may talk about it as if it would be ridiculous to believe something like this. They may talk about it as if only someone uneducated, only someone stupid would believe things like that. You may have a friend who leaves the faith or ceases to, uh, to make it an important part of their lives. And this can be an attack on your faith. Of course, they're not necessarily attacking you, but it's something that threatens to dislodge your faith in God. You may have a friend who stopped going to church, and you say, hey, you know, I haven't seen you at church lately. Um, and they say, yeah, I've, I've been busy. You know, I just feel like I'm not getting a whole lot of, out of it. And, you know, besides, I'm saved. You know, it's not like you have to go to church to be saved. And you wonder, why aren't I doing that? Why do I keep trying to get closer to God? I might, as, I might be able to do just as well on my own. Sometimes, as a Christian, it feels like popular opinion is very much against you. Have you ever felt that way? You know, you're watching TV and uh, watching a movie, and, and Christianity is getting made fun of. And you'll hear them making fun of a group of people, and uh, it's all really funny. And then you say, wait... I'm in that group of people that they're making fun of. I'm one of them. What do you do when the people who are, who are representing a popular um, opinion start to sound more compelling than the Christians who are representing a Christian view on that issue? What do you do then? That sounds more compelling. Sometimes it feels like your belief system is a little too extreme. You think to yourself... Maybe I need to take a, a perspective that's a little bit more in the middle. You've got to have balance, right? Sometimes we experience attacks on our faith that either push us to compromise or um, invite us to let our faith fall to the background of our lives. And one of the truths that we need to embrace this morning is that what is popular is not always right. And what is right is not always popular. I had an experience in fourth grade that I think represents kind of how this dialogue, how this, this uh, experience often plays out in our lives. I was in Mr. Mark's fourth grade class, and it was around Christmas time. And uh, we were walking between one class to the next, and we'd come back to our classroom, and we had to wait in the hallway outside because something was finishing up inside the classroom. And we were loosely lining this, uh, this wall of the hallway, and there on the wall was um, this uh, cardboard Christmas tree. And, um, you know, on this 
this cardboard Christmas tree, there were some candy canes. Not the big ones, you know, the little ones that come in the wrapper, you know what I'm talking about. So they were stuck in these little slots on the cardboard Christmas tree. And uh, we were there for maybe, I don't know, not a long time, but maybe 10 minutes waiting for something to finish up. And before I knew it, my friend had come up to me and he was telling me that there was this tree up there and there were candy canes on it and he was holding one in his hand. And not wanting to miss out, I walked right up there and checked it out, took a look over it, and, I, and I, several people had already taken some. And so I looked over at you know, a friend, hey, are we allowed to take the, the, Christmas, the candy canes on the Christmas tree? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, uh, who said? Nobody. They're, 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 here, they're here for people to take. You know, Jay took one. And, uh, and, I, and, I was, and I was like, I don't think we're supposed to take them. Um, and I continued asking around, looking for confirmation that a teacher had given us permission to take these uh, candy canes, um, and also trying to tell people that I did not think we were supposed to be taking them. And, uh, and so I was going around talking to people, and there were a lot of different voices in the hallway that day. And here are the sort of things they said. Jay and Sue and Sam took one. They're free. I saw someone else from another class take one. There's no sign that says we can't take them. They wouldn't put them here if they didn't want, expect people to take them. I've already got one in my mouth, and I can't put it back. <laughs> I've got two. Take one before they're gone. They're not free, Ben. No one has given us permission. Everyone else is taking one. They're free. I'm telling you, Ben, they're free. Just take one. Good grief. And I looked over at that that, uh, Christmas tree, and I said, there's only three left. What's one more? Yoink. Ten minutes after we had settled into our classroom, the principal came in and explained that she had a bunch of disappointed preschoolers out in the hall. And she was wondering if any of us had happened to take any candy canes. And we all had to give them back. Except for that girl who had one in her mouth. She couldn't give that one back. I had a very clear belief I had been trained not to take things without adult uh, permission. But my convictions wavered, and I went with the crowd. How do you deal with attacks on your faith? How do you distinguish between what is an attack on a solid belief or when it's really time for me to change? When it feels like you are pretty isolated in your beliefs, be it at work or at home or around your friends... How do you stay confident that you are on a firm foundation that won't later be found out to be hollow? Well, the church that John was writing to in the book of John was, an experience, was experiencing an attack on their faith. And as he says in chapter 3, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And this attack was coming from a religious viewpoint called Gnosticism. So we've got to get into Gnosticism a little bit this morning because it helps things make a little bit more sense. Gnosticism shared um, some, some things in, in common with Christianity, and it made it very difficult for the people in that church to be able to distinguish, you know, if their teachings were true or not because um, it was very similar. They, they shared a lot in common. Gnosticism, however, was very different from Christianity on many essential teachings, and it was soundly rejected by all of the apostles of Jesus. To get a feel for what they're experiencing, here are some things that you should know about Gnosticism. Gnostic teaching held that the material world was evil, but the spiritual world was good. So the physical world, the material world is evil, and the spiritual world is good. And of course, this is contrary to Christian teaching that says that it was all created good, but that it was corrupted. 
this is an important thing. So anything that was physical was evil just because it was physically existent for them. Gnostics taught that you had to achieve enlightenment in order to obtain eternal life at your death. So you had to be enlightened. And the way you got enlightenment was through special um, teaching that came through, through Gnostic teaching. And, uh, and, and so, so they called this, it was actually, the, the word was gnosis. And that, that was the word for knowledge. And so you had to have this special knowledge in order to become um, a true Gnostic and to uh, achieve eternal life. For some Gnostics, Jesus became the Savior who came down from heaven to earth. And this is where it gets confusing, right? You know, we believe Jesus was a Savior who came from heaven to earth. They believe Jesus was a Savior who came to he- from heaven to earth, and he provided this special knowledge that people needed in order to obtain eternal life. But since the physical world was evil, they maintained that Jesus was never a man, and that he could never have uh, died on a cross. He was just a spiritual being. Because, you know, if he was a man, then he would have been evil. The Gnostics were described as a promiscuous group, which was likely because they figured that salvation was a totally spiritual thing and that they were free to do what they liked with their physical life. I mean, the physical life doesn't even matter. It's all the spiritual life. And to the Gnostic, they had this phrase, all things are lawful. And uh, Paul actually quotes that in, in, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians. What made this attack so much more difficult was that apparently a meaningful group of people who had already held these Gnostic beliefs had just left this church that John is writing to. It meant that the people who were left behind began to wonder if they had made a mistake. Are we missing out on a better life with these Gnostic teachers? If so many others are leaving, maybe they know something that we don't. Why are we so different from everyone else? Well, nowadays, you don't run into a Gnostic very often. I actually had a friend in high school who was kind of getting into it. But, uh, you know, we don't run into Gnostics very often. Um, but I'd like to, so I'd like to give you a modern-day equivalent to Gnosticism so we can make this re- relevant to our context. Now, you might think that if atheism or Buddhism or Islam or scientific naturalists, you, you might think that those would be um, a natural equivalent for Gnosticism. But I think the best modern-day equivalent for Gnosticism is cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. And what do I mean by cultural Christianity? Cultural Christianity is Christian beliefs mixed with so much of American culture that it ceases to be the real thing. I think cultural Christianity is the most difficult to handle, the most attractive, and the best disguised attack on people of true Christian faith. The Bible says that there's this spiritual being, Satan, who is disguised as an angel of light. And one of his best attacks on you today is going to be something that calls itself by our same name and uses all the same language. It's a good disguise. But at its core, it's something very different. Cultural Christianity has a high value on cultural precepts over and above Christian beliefs. And so here's some examples of cultural cultural precepts that are core to uh, cultural Christianity. These are the sort of things cultural Christians embrace. Compatibility. You need to live together first to find out if you're compatible so you can have a successful relationship. I mean, that's, that's gospel truth um, in, in, culture, in our culture. There are plenty of people who call themselves Christians, who acknowledge Jesus, and who take this perspective um, based off this principle. The character profile of the goody-two-shoes. 
I think that's something that identifies cultural Christianity. The idea here is that people who are trying to live morally upright lives, who are trying to better their lives, are inherently condescending. That's what the, the, the character profile of the goody two-shoes tells us. You want, you want to live a morally upright life? That means you're condescending. If you've ever volunteered, here's another precept. If you've ever, ever volunteered for anything, you are officially a good person. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's part of cultural Christianity. Good people go to heaven. That's a precept of cultural Christianity. Now, maybe you didn't realize this, but that's not Christianity. We don't believe that. Here's another one. Each person's first obligation is to look out for themselves. That's not Christianity. That's self-centered individualism. It's a byproduct of our culture. It's a very common thing. It doesn't even seem wrong to us, right? I mean, this is our culture. We're familiar with this, right? But that's not Christianity. Cultural Christianity is a religion that follows our culture's definition of morality. For our culture, our culture today, this, this idea of purity is an archaic concept, isn't it? I mean, purity, what is that? We don't live in the Middle Ages. You know, so, so it's been, you know, it's, I think it's actually been made a little bit of a comeback lately. Um, you know, you see it in um, uh, the, the series with uh, the vampires. Um, what's the name of the series? Stephanie Meyer. I'm, I'm miss- Twilight, yes, Twilight. You know, there's, there's a value on, on virginity there. It's kind of weird. It's like, whoa, that's weird. I think it's making a little bit of a comeback because we've become a little bit disgusted to the lengths at which our culture has gone to just abandon morality completely. So I think it's making a little bit of a comeback, but real, still today, the idea of moral purity, purity at all, is an archaic concept to our culture. And instead, we have a new moral purity that has um, a key mantra that I, I think this is key to our moral, our sense of morality in our culture. All things in moderation. I think that's our new moral purity for our culture. All things in moderation. Christianity says stay completely away from all things that are impure or displeasing to God. Don't let them into your life at all. And for the things that are good and designed to be enjoyed, enjoy them. Enjoy them completely. Don't do that in moderation. The Bible says if it's good, then enjoy it as it's supposed to be enjoyed. But instead, we say... I don't get drunk very often. All things in moderation. It's just a little bit of pornography. All things in moderation. Dishonesty. A little lying is okay. You know, it's okay to stretch the truth a little bit. That's okay. These are the voices of cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity says you can pick and choose your religious beliefs based on your intuition. And this is a common thing for cultural Christians. They say, well, well, that, that Christian belief doesn't really make sense to me. And so on that issue, I'm going to believe something different. Cultural Christianity says the Bible has a lot of good ideas, but we don't have to accept everything in it. Cultural Christianity avoids beliefs that are far from where the culture is at. Don't be too different. Don't be too extreme. And you see, if you, if you think about it, extreme is just another word for how far you are from popular opinion isn't it? Cultural Christianity is willing to say, I believe in God. I just don't think an embryo is, is a person. I mean, it's just an embryo. You can't even see it. It's not a person. The problem with this approach to truth is that the locus of truth resides in the individual's own intuition and reason instead of in a higher power. And you see, if you believe in a God and you believe that he's revealed himself to this world, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what he determined When he was God and created the world, it matters what he determined to be true. 
And certainly he has an authority on what is true and false. And the Bible makes clear that any woman who is pregnant is carrying a person inside of her. Cultural Christianity says, your life doesn't need to change after you become a Christian. After all, it's just a spiritual relationship that gets you salvation. So it doesn't really matter how you live. Does that sound familiar? To me, it sounds a lot like Gnostic ideas of morality. It's all the same thing. We've got the same tactics coming down through the years. They used it in 200 AD. They're using it today. So how do we avoid the trap of just caving to the crowd? How do we make sure we aren't drifting into the stream of the culture and being pulled away by the tide? Here are some principles that John gives to the church, and they apply to our scenario too. The first principle is you have to stay close to those core truths. You have to stay close to those core, core truths. Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 5. That's where we're going to be at. I'm going to reference some verses in there. It might be helpful. We're going to have some verses up on, on the screen as well. Um, but 1 John 5 is where we're at. And uh, verse 5 says this. Who is it that overcomes the world? And this is our theme. How do, we, how do we overcome attacks on our faith? Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. It's a core truth. John emphasizes the core of what, of what Christians are. He's, he's getting back to the core truths. You don't want to get away from these. Throughout this passage, John keeps mentioning that we must believe in Jesus as the Son of God. He says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. You need to stay close to the core truths. So what are these core truths? The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. If you're not familiar with these, these are historic creeds. They've been around a long time. They were very carefully written. People spent hours, days, months, years crafting these creeds so that they would reflect what is absolutely, definitely true. No, um, no shadiness, no, no uh, skepticism, no speculation inside them. You can take a look at our statement of faith. It's on the website. These are what I mean by core truths. You know, I've read a lot of statement of faith, and I think we have a really great statement of faith. It takes the core things and leaves out the, uh, the things that are non-essentials. These things are core things, and if you stay close to them and remember that they are definitely true, then you won't get distracted or be pulled away by impressive ideas that just aren't true. One of the more important core truths that we have is that the Bible is a book from God. It is completely true. And I'm not going to go into why we believe the Bible is completely true because it's a long discussion, but Stan offers a great class. We offer it periodically, um, and it, it'll, it'll go through all of that for you, why we believe the Bible is completely true. But it's important to acknowledge, if you're going to be a Christian, it's important to acknowledge that this book is, is completely true because a lot of what we believe is based on the truthfulness of the Bible. You see, our beliefs are a package deal. You can't pick and choose them because the moment you do is the moment you've created a different belief system that's not Christianity. It's dependent on your intuition and your reason, and it's not. instead it should be dependent on God's actions to reveal who he is to our world. When you stay close to the core truths, you reduce the risk of wandering away from the faith because the core truths provide a measuring stick for other truths. When they put together the Bible in the first few centuries of uh, the, the Christian church, they, uh, they, they gathered together what they called um, the canon. 
These are the, the, the books that we ha- now have as our Bible. And they called, it, this, they called these books, these are the canon. And the word canon actually means ruler or measuring stick. And the reason they called it canon was because these books provided a measuring stick for measuring other truths. And so here's how it works. Someone once told me that we are going to be, we're all going to be 33 years old when we, die, when we die and go to heaven. Everyone in heaven is going to be 33 years old because Jesus died when he was 33, and that's the perfect age. That's what they told me. I, I seriously heard this when I was a teen. Well, that's very interesting, but let's take that idea over here and hold it up to our measuring stick to see if it's truth or speculation. That's how these core truths work. And when you, when you compare it to uh, what we've already got and we know is true... We say, ooh, that's speculation. Someone told me that when uh, my parents die, they're going to be able to grant wishes on their birthday. And if I pray to them on their birthday, they'll give me what I ask for. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Let's take that over here and compare it to our measuring stick. Ooh, that's not true. And actually, that looks a lot like ancestor worship. Ooh, you know, I wouldn't do that. Someone told me that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Someone told me that suicide is the unforgivable sin. Someone told me that if I put a cross in my mirror of of my car, when I get in an accident, I'll be protected. A lot of of miscellaneous stuff that just comes floating in. We need something to measure these things and say, hey, here's something that's true, here's something that's not true. These core truths protect us from being led astray by falsehoods. The second principle John gives us is that we must keep God's commands. We must keep God's commands. And this is a big theme in John. Take a look at verse 3. He says, In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. There's plenty of suggestion in this letter and in this passage that one of the keys to overcoming attacks is to keep following the commands of God. It's a little bit counterintuitive. An attack, follow the commands of God. I mean, where's the connection there? You see, cultural Christianity is always willing to bend the rules. There will always be this temptation for us to bend them as well. And one of the ways that we can know that we are walking in the truth is when we are keeping the commands of God. Take a look at what uh, John says in 1 John chapter 2. He says this, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. When we are following the commands of God, we can be confident that we are walking in the truth. It's it's an odd metric, but it is a metric for whether we are walking in the truth. Attacks on your faith won't only come come from someone attacking your beliefs. There will also be attacks that encourage you to bend your integrity to the ways of popular behaviors. You'll be hanging out with your friends and they'll want to go to a bar. And you've been reading your Bible, so you know that alcohol is allowed, but drunkenness is not. And so you have, you have a drink with your friends and all of your friends want to play beer pong. And they say, come on, let's just play just like we used to, just like the good old days. Come on, man, let's go play some beer pong. And uh, you say, uh, no thanks, I've had enough alcohol. Oh, come on. You aren't going to be very much fun if you're not willing to have more than one drink. I don't want to play beer pong. Man, I liked you better before you got into all this religious stuff. What's wrong? Your God says you can't have any fun? You ever been in that sort of situation? 
Attacks on your faith will encourage you to compromise on God's commands. But you need to have moral integrity that is strong, so strong that you will not bend when there's a lot of pressure to compromise on the smallest little thing. Jesus says this, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The third principle for overcoming attacks on your faith is that you must know why you believe what you believe, and you must not be ashamed of it. You must know what, why you believe what you believe, and you must not be ashamed of it. In verse 6, John has this somewhat cryptic discourse. Let's take a look at this uh, passage in, in uh, 1 John 5. It starts at verse 6, and he says this, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. It's a bit of a cryptic passage, isn't it? Um, but if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, the water and blood are easy to identify, aren't they? The water is his baptism, where God spoke from heaven and confirmed verbally that Jesus was his son. And people saw the presence of God descending on Jesus. It was a miracle that could be verified by eyewitnesses, and it demonstrates that Jesus was the son of God. The blood was Jesus' death on the cross. And his death proved that Jesus was in fact human, which, if you remember correctly, the, it's something the Gnostics did not believe. And there were eyewitnesses to this as well, and it was a testimony to Jesus' humanity. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit enters into your body. The Holy Spirit of God enters into your body, and He guides us through life and shows us what is true and from God. Um, he shows us these things. What John is essentially doing here is he's telling people to look back to the reasons they believed in the first place. And that's a helpful for, thing for all Christians to do. 1 Peter 3.16 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared and do this with gentleness and respect. Do you know why you believe? Why do you believe? Could you explain it to someone else, why you believe, and don't just believe other things? For most people, the reason... This reason comes down to an experience they've had with the living God. He showed himself to you, and you could not deny that he was real. You couldn't deny that he, being God, had the rights to your life, and so you handed your, your, those rights over to him. It might have happened in an evening. It might have happened over several months, but you've had this, this experience with God. Now, you'll run into people who say, your faith doesn't make sense. They'll, they'll accuse you of blindly believing what other people have told you. They'll say they have reasons for believing what they believe. And they'll triumph their own logic over your, as, as more sound and reliable than your faith. Now, if you were just blindly believing what other people told you, that's not a good thing. Um, if you've never experienced God for yourself, that's not good. I would recommend that you seek him out until you have found him. 
And if you are seeking with your whole heart, you will find him. But if you have experienced God, I want to encourage you to see how your beliefs are more sound than your friend's reason. You see, our faith is not based on nothing. It's based off of real evidence that, that forms a plenty strong basis for belief. Your faith is based on the resurrection. It's a historical event that had hundreds of eyewitnesses. Your faith is based on miracles, miracles that happened long ago, miracles that still happen today. Your faith is based on answered prayer, situation after situation that's been turned around after you prayed for God's help. Your faith is based on archaeological findings that come up all the time that demonstrate the historical accuracy of the Bible. But more important than any of these, your faith is based on an experience with the living God where he showed you that he was very much real. It's evidence that demands a verdict, and the verdict is clear. Yes, there's a step of faith to get from that evidence to Christianity. There's a step of faith there. But, but most of the things, I would argue all of the things that we believe and know in life are based on a measure of faith. They say that every dollar bill is backed by a certain amount of gold in the, uh, the U.S. Treasury. I believe them. I've never seen that gold. I believe it's there, but I've never seen it. I'm taking it by faith. You might say that I can go see it, which is true. But I haven't. They got that gold somewhere in a vault. I've never seen it, but I believe it's there. They tell me it's there. I believe it's there. They say that Jupiter has a big red spot on its side. They say that Jupiter is this big planet. I believe them. But I've never, I've, I've never seen Jupiter's spot except in a picture. Someone pointed out Jupiter to me once in the sky, and, and to me, I'll be honest, it just looked like a star. I mean, maybe I was looking at the wrong thing, but it just looked like another spot in the sky. Even still, I believe it's up there. I believe it's got the red spot. I believe it's this big thunderstorm and not a bunch of food coloring. I really do. I believe it. I'm taking it by faith. When we believe, we aren't doing anything different than what we do every day when we take someone at their word, when we make choices based on information that we've received. We take a bit of evidence and we choose to believe one way or the other. Now, now Ben, you may say, Ben, these, these are all things we can experience. You can go to the U.S. Treasury and you can see the gold. You can go flying into outer space and you can fly by Jupiter and see it. These are all things you can experience. Well, you can experience the living God you can experience him just like you experience love, and you can't see that one either. You can experience him like you experience joy, and that's not visible. Like the wind, and that's not visible. God has made himself accessible. You can experience him in a way that is beyond doubt. And don't worry. One day you will see him. You just haven't seen him yet. And the reason that this testimony, as John calls it, is greater than any man's reason is because people's reasoning and logic can be faulty. People make logical fallacies all the time. I mean, all the time. I've probably made a logical fallacy already here today. I mean, we make these all the time. Arguments from authority, straw man arguments, arguments from silence. We do this. We are, fa we are, we are faulty people. We make mistakes. Our arguments and reasoning just are not as tight as we'd like to think they are. Going with evidence that leads you to believe that God in God is plenty sound 
when you compare it to Joe Schmo's reasoning. In this passage, John is reminding us of what we believe, why we believe it, and Jesus makes it very clear that we should not be ashamed of these things. If we do this, we can be confident in the midst of attacks on our faith. The fourth thing John tells us to do is to know our privileged status as a child of God. Have you ever gone somewhere and uh, gotten a VIP pass? Ever done that? You go in there and they give you the red carpet treatment and uh, let me take your coat, let me take your bag. So, by the way, you're VIP, so you get special access to this special place over here and they give you special things in there. Only VIP people get that. And uh, it's all a little bit ridiculous, um, but it can be fun. So, when you become a Christian, you have a VIP pass with God. You have privileged status and it gets you special benefits. You have become a child of the God of the universe through adoption. And you can have confidence when you go through life because you are one of God's kids. You get benefits. Do you know what they are? Verse 14. Here's here's one of them. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us whatever we ask. We know that we have, or if if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. You can ask for things, and he will give them to you. I mean, it's pretty crazy. You want a brand new Harley Davidson? You can ask. And he'll say, son, what you're really asking for is a thrilling life. I'll give you a thrilling life. Bam, you got a thrilling life. All of a sudden, your life becomes plenty thrilling, and uh, maybe a little too thrilling. He's giving you what you asked for. He knows what you're really asking for. You can ask God to remove pain from your life, and he'll hear you, and he'll say, what you're really asking for is relief from the pain, relief from the oppressiveness of the pain. And, uh, and he'll, he'll help you. He'll show you how to handle the pain so that it's not oppressive. Or maybe, sometimes he just takes away the pain. Sometimes he answers in another way. We can come confidently to God asking for things, and he will hear us. Now, we can't expect to boss him around saying, God, I want this. We can't, we can't do that. He's, he's the daddy, and he, he decides what's best for us, and he will take care of us and give us everything that we need. Verse 18, you get safety and security from the evil one. Verse 20, you get truth and understanding and profound understanding about our world. Verse 12, you get eternal life. That is a benefit. Verse 18, you get victory over sin. Sin does not necessarily have to have victory in your life. With God, you can overcome it. There's a lot of benefits to being a true child of God. And you should know these things are not available to cultural Christians. They don't get these things. When you remember all of those benefits that come from being a cherished child of God, the other past, the other, other attacks, they don't seem so attractive now. If you know you found something better than anything else you found in life, you wouldn't let go of that. You'd hold on to it in the midst of persecution and attack. When John writes this letter, he makes clear that he's not writing because the church has done anything wrong. He's not writing because they've misunderstood some truth of God. He wants them to be confident about where they are at. He wants them to, to, to believe that they are right in the middle of God's plan for their lives, even if it feels like the world has gone on without them. And this is our prayer today, that you would see 
that your true faith is more valuable than the cheap alternative that cultural Christianity presents to you. I pray that you would not be tempted by the voice that says that you're too extreme or you're too different or that you're missing out. Some of you will one day find that you have fallen into the trap of cultural Christianity. And you'll realize that your faith is not centered on God, but on yourself and your own intuition and reasoning and preferences. And you'll realize that it's not real and it's not satisfying. I pray that that would not happen to you. I pray that you would draw close to God, close to those core truths, close to His command, close to those benefits, so close that the joy you experience in Him provides a thick wall around you that no attack, however subtle it may be, can penetrate. John says this, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Have overcome them. And here's the key. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in this world. Would you go ahead and stand?